0: You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. This episode is another in our regular series, taking an in-depth look at the SMFM pregnancy meeting. To find out more about the meeting, go to www.smfm.org or go to the AJP homepage at www.tima.com forward slash AJP. Welcome to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. SMFM edition. Day two of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine 39th Annual Pregnancy Meeting started with the exciting fellows oral plenary session. The Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine fellows set the bar very high in the session with four of the eight abstracts being randomized clinical trials. Three of these abstracts continued to focus on interpartum or labor and delivery management. Dr. Rakawik, who presented on behalf of the primary author, Dr. Berg, congratulations on his new baby delivered on SMFM day one, their project, Dental Support Device in the Second Stage of Labor in Nulliparous Patients with Vaginal Delivery. The authors hypothesized that the use of a dental support device, usually used to increase athletic muscle performance, could increase the effectiveness of pushing in the second stage of labor. The dental support device is a labor aid mouthpiece, a commercially available dental device made of soft plastic, three millimeters in thickness, which is inserted over the lower jaw with bite plates overloading the molar teeth. The patients were instructed to bite down on the dental support device while they were pushing. This group performed a randomized controlled trial of dental support device versus usual care with the goal to reduce the duration of pushing among singleton, nolliparous, term patients admitted for a planned vaginal birth. This was conducted between 2017 and 2018. The investigators recruited 338 patients and 167 were randomized to the dental support device, while 171 were randomized to the control group. Rates of vaginal delivery were 96% and 94% respectively. Overall, there was no significant difference in the median pushing time in the dental support device versus the control group with pushing times of 46 minutes and 53 minutes, respectively. However, patients admitted in spontaneous labor and those who did not require oxytocin, the dental support groups had a shorter median pushing time comparing to expectant management groups. Importantly, there were no differences in obstetric or neonatal outcomes in the groups, and 65% of patients who used the dental support device 100% of the time while pushing. Women in the dental support device group reported that the device was helpful and comfortable, and they would use it again. While this data is early and preliminary, the authors suggest that using dental support devices may be useful in reducing the duration of the second stage of labor in women with spontaneous labor. Dr. Ashley Batterby presented abstract number 46 for the maternal fetal medicine units. This analysis was a secondary analysis of the randomized ARRIVE trial, including women undergoing expectant management of low-risk pregnancy or elective induction of labor at 39 weeks. The goal of this study was to evaluate the association between timing of amniotomy and maternal and neonatal outcomes among nulliparous women undergoing labor induction at term. The goal was to determine if women who underwent induction with early artificial rupture membranes defined as artificial rupture membranes prior to 5 centimeters dilated had different cesarean delivery rates or outcomes compared to those that did not have early artificial rupture membranes. The primary outcome in this study was cesarean delivery and secondary outcomes included chorioamnionitis, duration of labor greater than 24 hours, and maternal morbidity. Overall, early amniotomy in this group was associated with higher adjusted odds of cesarean chorioamnionitis, duration of labor greater than 24 hours, and maternal hospitalization greater than three days. Overall, artificial rupture membranes prior to five centimeters was associated with an increased risk of cesarean delivery and chorioamnionitis. Taken as a continuous variable from time of onset of labor to time of artificial rupture membranes, artificial rupture membranes prior to or be prior to oxytocin use or greater than six hours from the onset of oxytocin use was associated with increased risk of cesarean delivery and labor greater than 24 hours. Dr. Batterby demonstrated that there appears to be a complex association between timing of artificial rupture membranes and duration of labor and cesarean delivery rate associated with timing of artificial rupture membranes from this data, additional analysis of early artificial rupture membranes defined as a time interval since the start of labor induction are needed to better understand the differences and in the influence of timing of artificial rupture membranes and the duration of labor. This third study looking at intrapartum management was presented by Dr. Purish from Columbia University entitled Impact of Delayed Cord Clamping, on maternal blood loss in term cesareans, a randomized trial. In this two-center randomized clinical trial, maternal blood loss was compared among patients undergoing cesarean delivery who underwent immediate cord clamping, defined as less than 15 seconds after birth, compared to delayed cord clamping, which was defined as 60 seconds after birth, at the time of a term cesarean delivery. Women in this study included full-term, singleton gestations. Patients with abnormal placentation, fetal anomalies, known fetal anemia, growth restriction, or significant maternal anemia or bleeding disorders were excluded. The primary outcome was a drop in maternal hemoglobin from pre-op to post-op day one. Secondary maternal outcomes included estimated blood loss and postpartum hemorrhage greater than 1,000 milliliters, as well as need for blood transfusion. Neonatal outcomes included a hemoglobin at 24 to 27 hours of life. In this study, 113 women were randomized to immediate cord clamping or delayed cord clamping. Immediate or delayed cord clamping was not associated with a difference in the primary outcome defined as a mean drop in hemoglobin. Those with immediate cord clamping had a maternal drop in hemoglobin of 1.7 grams per deciliter, and those with delayed cord clamping had a drop of 1.85 grams per deciliter which was not significant. Importantly, neonatal hemoglobin showed a higher hemoglobin with delayed cord clamping at 18.1 grams per deciliter compared to immediate cord clamping of 16.4. Thus, the authors in this study suggested that in scheduled terms of delivery, delayed cord clamping is not associated with increased maternal blood loss, but does achieve higher neonatal hemoglobin levels at 24 to 72 hours of birth. An important topic at this time is the use and potential abuse of opioid analgesics following obstetric care. To attempt to answer this question, Dr. Dennis from McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, Texas, presented on behalf of her co-authors a randomized trial performed at their institution. They presented abstract number 42, non-opioid versus opioid analgesia after hospital discharge from a cesarean delivery, a randomized clinical trial. In this single-center, open-label, comparative effectiveness equivalence trial, women with a cesarean delivery were included. Before hospital discharge, women were randomized to prescriptions for non-opioid analgesia, which included ibuprofen, 600 milligrams, every six hours, plus acetaminophen, 325 milligrams, one or two tablets every four hours, or an opioid prescription, which included ibuprofen, 600 milligrams every six hours, plus hydrocodone, acetaminophen, 5-325 milligram tablets, one or two tablets every four hours. In either group, if the patient felt their pain was not adequately controlled, they could call to the provider and get a rescue opioid prescription. The primary outcome in this study was a pain score at two to four weeks after discharge recorded on a visual analog scale. As this was an equivalent study, treatments were considered equivalent if the bounds of the 95% confidence interval for the group difference in mean pain scores were between negative 10 and 10 millimeters on the visual analog scale. In this study, 170 women were randomized, of which the primary outcome was available in 88% of the patients. Interestingly, when compared to the non-opioid group, the mean visual analog pain score was higher or worse in the opioid group at 12.36 versus 15.93 millimeters with an adjusted mean difference of 4.89 with a confidence interval of negative 2.19 to 11.96. Since the confidence interval upper limit was greater than the pre-specified 10 millimeter difference in mean pain scores, the treatments were considered not equivalent, implying that the opioid group had a pain score that was clinically significantly higher and thus favoring the non-opioid group. Patient satisfaction was similar between the two groups. Importantly, women in the opioid group experienced drug-related side effects more frequently, most commonly being somnolence. In the group that was originally prescribed non-opioid medications, 22 of the patients ultimately did take some degree of opioid analgesia. These authors then summarized that adding opioids to a regimen of ibuprofen and acetaminophen for outpatient analgesia after cesarean delivery increased the likelihood of drug-related side effects and did not appear to improve pain score or patient satisfaction at two to four weeks following discharge from the cesarean delivery. In another randomized controlled trial, Dr. Hamill from Alpert Medical School, Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, presented their trial, randomized controlled trial of intrapartum glucose management in women with gestational diabetes. The goal of this trial was to assess the effect of tight compared to more liberalized intrapartum maternal blood glucose management for women with gestational diabetes on neonatal blood glucose concentration following delivery. This was a randomized controlled trial of women with singleton gestations with gestational diabetes who were attempting a vaginal delivery. Patients were randomized, each group including 38 patients, to one of two interpartum maternal glucose management protocols. The tight control protocol included hourly blood glucose measurements with treatment for maternal blood glucose either less than 60 mg per deciliter or greater than 100 mg per deciliter. Or the other arm, a more liberalized control, which included blood glucose measurements every four hours and treatment for maternal blood glucose less than 60 milligrams per deciliter or greater than 120 milligrams per deciliter. The primary outcome was the first neonatal blood glucose concentration assessed within two hours after birth, and secondary outcomes included neonatal blood glucose concentrations within the first 24 hours of life, number of glucose treatments, and neonates that received to improve their glucose, as well as NICU admission and neonatal hyperbilirubinemia. Two-thirds of the patients in each of the groups received medication, predominantly insulin, in the antepartum period. The primary outcome was similar between both the tight and the liberalized groups, with initial neonatal blood glucose of 53 milligrams per deciliter compared to 58 milligrams per deciliter. However, in the first 24 hours of life, the mean neonatal glucose concentrations were lower in the tight control group at 54 milligrams per deciliter compared to 58 milligrams per deciliter in the more liberal control. There were no other significant differences in the secondary outcomes. However, the neonatal intensive care nursery admission rate was 13% for those in the tight control and 3% in the more liberal control. Thus, this study supported using a more liberalized control of maternal glucose assessment during labor and delivery. Finally, an additional fellow presentation attempted to shed light onto a common problem, patients who deliver preterm despite placement of a cervical cerclage. Dr. Glover and her colleagues from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Presented Abstract 43, elevated mid-trimester maternal serum cytokines are associated with spontaneous preterm birth in women undergoing cerclage. In this prospective cohort study of singleton non-anomalous pregnancies from 2016 to 2018 at a single tertiary institution, patients who had already been selected to proceed with either a history-indicated ultrasound-indicated or exam-indicated cerclage underwent maternal blood sampling to measure serum inflammatory cytokines. The cytokine levels were then compared between women who ultimately delivered via spontaneous preterm birth prior to 37 weeks gestational age and those with term birth. A statistical cut point was calculated for each cytokine to determine the optimal sensitivity and specificity of that cytokine in prediction of spontaneous preterm birth. Women were then classified as having a high or low result, and the number of high or low cytokines was compared among those who ultimately had spontaneous preterm birth. 42 women were included in the study, of which 47% had a spontaneous preterm birth, delivering at a median gestational age of 29 weeks. Maternal serum levels of IL-6, MCP-1, and MMP-8 were higher in women with spontaneous preterm birth. A greater number of high inflammatory cytokines and ultrasound or exam-indicated cerclage were associated with earlier delivery gestational age. Presence of four high cytokine results was 75% sensitive and 91% specific for spontaneous preterm birth with area under the curve of 0.84 with a 95% confidence interval of 0.71 to 0.97 positive predictive value, 88%, negative predictive value, 80%. In this study, among women who undergo cerclage and lack signs and symptoms of labor or intra infection, elevated maternal serum cytokine profiles drawn in the perioperative period was associated with preterm birth. The authors suggest that refinement of this panel could potentially provide insight into approved selection of patients who might benefit or might not benefit from cervical cerclage. Overall, day two of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine annual pregnancy meeting showcased an amazing collection of maternal fetal medicine fellow projects. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about the journal at www.tima.com forward slash AJP, or check out our Facebook and Twitter pages. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next time.